Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, if you don't own, own a Bible, uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles, a little white one or blue paperback, whatever they are, uh, scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a one that you would call your own outside of this place, we would love for you to take one of those paperback ones home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of super important things, but the chief among those important things, the mountaintop of those important things, is that he uses it to reveal himself, all right, to his people, and we want you to know God, and so uh, if the primary tool that he's going to use to get you there is reading his word, then we want to get your nose in the Bible as often as possible, so you don't have one outside of this place. Take that one home. Hebrews chapter 2, not Romans, uh, not all kinds of other things. We, I don't know if we've ever really looked at Hebrews in here in my three years, uh, in charge of this place. Uh, So Hebrews is, if you're brand new to the Bible, it's towards the back, like almost like almost all the way to the back. It's in the New Testament. Uh, It's after uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul? (laughs) I've only had half a cup of coffee this morning. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John would not appreciate being called Paul. They'd probably get in a fist fight about it. All right, um, no, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians, Romans, all those. After you get past all the, all the Paul's letters, then you finally get to everybody else's stuff in the, in the New Testament, and that's where you find Hebrews. There are probably about 50, uh, 50 pages left in your Bible after you find it. Um, so I said earlier, it is the second week of Advent. And some of y'all are like, yeah! And some of you are like, so? <laughs> okay, what, what does that mean? Um, So if you don't have much of a church background, or or maybe you do and it just needs to be explained to you, Advent is the month-long celebration that leads up to Christmas. And some of you may be thinking, well, well, don't we just call that the Christmas season then? Like, they've been playing Christmas music over at Hobby Lobby for like two and a half months now. (laughs) And the answer is, no, it's not the same thing. Advent and the Christmas season are not the same thing. They, they may get used interchangeably at times by people who don't know any better. Uh, and, and because they're celebrated about the same amount of time during the same part of the calendar, it adds to the confusion. It muddies the waters a little bit. But when you actually look at them closely, the Christmas season, as our culture would define it, and Advent are worlds apart. They're actually totally different things. And the key difference between them is the focus of their attention. The focus of their attention. The Christmas season, at least as our culture would typically define it, is the most wonderful time of the year, right? Yeah, and we have songs about it. We talked last week, though, about the reality that that it's not actually the most wonderful time of the year for everybody in the room. That there are some that look at the Christmas season with a lot of pain, heartache, loneliness, For many people, the Christmas season is a season of frustration and something to be avoided if possible. We also talked about the reality that most wonderful time of the year isn't even true for everybody else in the room when you start really paying attention to all the things that are involved, right? That while there are these things that we love and celebrate and enjoy, there's these other things that aren't so great. There's these other things that we wish we could avoid too. But it's the game we play, right? So we just smile and move on. I'm not the Christmas is too commercialized guy. I never really have been. I I genuinely like the lights. Like, 
it's fun that we have a four-year-old boy in the car now because when we see the blue lights on the house down the road, we get excited, and I'm allowed to get excited too. I like the lights. And as you can tell, I have the physique of someone who loves Christmas food. I love the food. And yes, I even, like for real, I even like having the Christmas story play on an endless loop on TBS every year. Nobody else watches those? I watch those. Like it's, you know how fun it is to just kind of drop into Ralphie's story whenever you want? That's a good day. That's a good day, guys. I actually like that stuff. But at the same time, can, can anybody at all argue with the fact that Christmas has also become this thing that looks wholly different than anything that the Bible would prescribe? Can anybody argue with the fact at all that that those outside of the church, those who don't know Jesus, have picked up pieces of the Christmas season and run with them in directions that we can't actually follow them? Like, nope. Nobody would deny that. And while we could all stiffen our necks and start picking on this thing in the culture or that thing in the culture, church folk are kind of good at that sometimes. And while we could pick on this thing or that thing, I, I think the most tragic thing the f- by far the most tragic thing that's been lost is that, well, those who do know what this season is all about, those who do know what we're celebrating this month, well, they don't have a celebration that looks fundamentally different than those who don't. They've kind of merged together into this one homogenous thing that, that can't be identified anymore. I mean, think about it. Those who, who don't know Jesus, those who, who haven't been radically reconciled to God himself, by God himself, they're, they're, they're going to celebrate a holiday the only way they know how, right? That's just kind of human nature. And, and so what that typically becomes in our culture, at least in, from my vantage point, is a rush for more. And so we got to add another party, and we got to add another gift, and we got to add another one of these. And so we raise the bar again year after year after year because if we don't raise the bar, they're not going to be impressed and they're going to stop coming back. Anybody else feel that? Especially true in the church world. And despite what the Hallmark movie tries to tell us every year, I mean, I'll just go ahead and be the, the honest one in the room. Maybe I'm the only one. All of your hopes and dreams this Christmas are probably not going to be fulfilled. It's just not going to be everybody's experience, right? Like, for most people, the family's still going to fight. And for most people, maybe you're different, but for, for most people, the, the presents are going to be slightly less than perfect. No one's getting the Peloton bike. <laughs> and listen, some of those presents may even be unappreciated. Ignored. Rejected. And the meal that you plan is going to take way longer than you thought it would to prepare, and everybody's going to be hangry in your house. And I'll just go ahead and rip the band-aid off. I guarantee you're going to spend at least an hour and a half trying to figure out which of those stupid bulbs is out in the Christmas lights. <laughs> and you're going to throw them away, and you're going to buy new ones, and everything's going to be better. <laughs> right? That's, that's the world that we live in. I, I hate to break it to you, but this is the Genesis 3 reality of the Christmas season. It is. And if the promise that we're all hanging on to this time of year... If, if the hope that we're putting 
in this season will be that this is the year that it'll all finally come together. This is the year that it'll all be perfect. Man, you're going to crash really, really hard when reality finally shows up. But what's strange to me, like the part that I don't seem to understand is that despite the fact that this is our story, this is our situation and experience every single year, we all seem to keep rushing back to that repeatedly unfulfilled promise. It's just kind of our nature to just keep going back to it. And so we'll, we'll try a little harder this time. It, it, it'll work itself out if we just put in a little more effort. And, and maybe if we, if we start just a little bit earlier this year, get the planning done a little bit sooner, then we won't be so rushed when the, when the season finally gets here. And so we'll, we'll add a little bit more budget and we'll hire a better designer and we'll do this and we'll do that. And then finally, everything will click. And we keep, we keep rushing back, running back to that functional savior that never, ever actually comes through for us. And this, church, this is the moment where the Christian celebration of Advent steps in as a breath of fresh air. Advent means the arrival or the coming. See, where the the Christmas season is defined by our culture as a rush for more, Advent is an intentional tempo change. It's a slowing down. A pastor friend of mine likes to say that Advent forces us to take a slow walk to the manger. A slow walk. It's a long runway for the expectant trust that Jesus will do everything that he's promised. Not today. It's coming though. It's a long, slow walk. See, Advent, when, when celebrated correctly, not as an interchangeable term for the Christmas season, but, but as what it's actually meant to be, it forces us to slow down and take stock of what's actually going on around us. It, it takes our attention off of the to-do list and off of the calendar and off of whatever that next thing you've got to pull off is, that next task to complete. And instead, it puts it squarely on who God is and what God has done and what God is is doing. And I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I'm, I, I desperately need more of those moments in my life. I need those moments. I, I need moments where I'm reminded that Stephen Woodard is reminded that I'm not the one getting stuff done. I need the story told and retold moment after moment where the greatest need in all of history, the man's separation from a holy God because of sin. I need to be retold the story over and over again where the greatest need in all of history wasn't fixed, wasn't accomplished by me, and it wasn't accomplished by you or by anybody else that we can point to. No, no, no. The greatest need in all of history, the gap between God and man was bridged not by my power but by Jesus's. I need those moments because I know what's in me. And I know know if I just spin the wheels a little faster, I I can try to pull it off. So I need, need the moments where God calls us to say, slow down. It's not on you. It's not your job. God fixed the gap between God and man by God coming near. He put on flesh and dwelt among us, we're told. He came in 
humility. He came as a baby. Like, like a baby. Like, you may not need me to tell you this, but, but baby, babies are helpless, man. <laughs> like, is anybody not aware of that? <laughs> babies, they can't do much. They're just, they're just kind of there. They, they, they can't accomplish anything for themselves. Like, if you take me and drop me out in the woods for the week, like, I think I can pull it off. Like, I'm old and fat now, but I used to do a lot of that stuff when I was younger, right? And so, like, I, I may be hurting at the end of the week, but I, I'll be okay. You, you send me with a bunch of food and a good tent, I'll actually enjoy my time there. <laughs> Plop a baby on a snowbank, hand him a fire starter and say, see you Thursday, how's it going? Not gonna go so well. They can't take care of themselves. Babies are completely helpless. They need to be fed. They need to be changed. They need to be bathed. Half the time, they can't even calm down enough to go to sleep unless you rock them. They are helpless. Absolutely helpless. Babies are completely at the mercy of someone else. Completely. And so that raises a weird question for me. Maybe it's not a question that that you've ever really actually thought through, but I mean, does anybody doubt that I'm the weirdest guy in the room? (laughs) But it's a question I got to answer nonetheless. Why did he come as a baby? Like, for real. Why, why did he come as a baby? Why, why would the world's long-expected Savior step into humanity in the most vulnerable way possible? Like, like, why would the one who is vested, eternally vested with power and glory upon high, the one who has uh, <laughs> spoke the world into existence by the sheer power of his word and will alone, that one, Why would that one who sits enthroned in heaven eternally receiving the praise and the glory that he's due, why would that one stepped into human history, the promised Savior, the great Redeemer that's supposed to turn this world upside down and finally rescue his people from bondage, why would that one come in vulnerability? Why would he come the way he did? I mean, God's the one writing the story, right? Like, couldn't couldn't he have done it any way he wanted to? I mean, just think about it. Like, like he could have Ramboed this thing. <laughs> Couldn't you just imagine? He's got the same hair. He'd have to shave. But Jesus puts on the bandana, just busts in guns a-blazing. Right? Jesus could have stepped into humanity in peak physical condition and showed those dirty old Romans what's what. He could have done it that way. Commando style. And if you were the you or I were the ones writing the story, like, like isn't that what we're going with? <laughs> like if we're dreaming this up, and we want to sit down across a table and a cup of coffee and say, "All right, guys, we need an incarnation story." How? We, what, what's our default here? Don't you want to show Jesus as the mighty King? That's not the story that God wrote. But that's not his story at all. Instead, we're told that God put on flesh and dwelt among us in such a way that left him intentionally vulnerable. And whether you've thought it through or not, God, God doesn't do accident. This is on purpose. And, 
And there's actually a massive theological reason for why he came the way he came. And that leads us to our text for this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. So we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some think it was the Apostle Paul, but there are really strong arguments, maybe even stronger arguments for somebody else having written it. Um, but what we do know about Hebrews is that it's, it's, it's all about Jesus, man. All about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews just aims squarely at uh, portraying Jesus as the greater fulfillment of everything we would hope to you would be. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater and final sacrifice for sin, right? And so Jesus is not only the fulfillment, but the amplification of every good thing that we were hoping he would be. And so in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to pick it up most of the way through the chapter. We're going to start in verse 14. We'll read the whole piece and then we'll come back. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, he's talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Propitiation is a payment of sacrifice, a sacrificial payment, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so just five verses, but the writer of Hebrews shoved a ton of stuff into those five verses. In fact, like, I can't even, we don't have near enough time this morning for me to touch on every single thing that ought to be touched on if we were walking all the way through Romans in its, or Hebrews in its fullness. But there are things here that directly affect the way we look at Advent. So I'm going to focus our time on them for just a minute this morning. So the author starts out with this incredibly sweeping assumption that because we are flesh and blood, so too needed to be Jesus if he was going to save us from, his, from our sins. That's the assumptions. He partook of the same things, the writer says. In other words, for meat bags like you and me to be saved, Jesus had to put on a meat bag. That's the Stephen Woodard translation. But, but why? Why? Like, okay, that, that sounds great. It, sure, he had to, but like, like why did he have to? Well, look at verse 14. There's several reasons, and the first one is found in the end of verse 14. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the who. So Jesus put on flesh and, so that he could die and thereby defeat the one who had the power over death. And that's our constant refrain every Advent season, right? We celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter, right? Jesus steps in as the rightful monarch to defeat the usurper. That's the story. The greatest weapon Satan had at his disposal is the very same weapon that Jesus uses to defeat him. He uses death itself. He undoes him with his very own weapon. When you think about the incarnation, God becoming man, it's, it's helpful to think of it in terms of a diamond. Like Some of you have seen a diamond, held a diamond. Some of you just have one in a ring. Some of you, you just looked at one in a picture. That's okay. All right. Me too. There's not a diamond on here. All right, so... A diamond has lots of different facets, right? And facet is just a fancy word for face. 
But facet sounds better because we're talking about diamonds. All right, so diamonds have lots of different facets. And, and somebody, if it's cut well, no matter which way you turn it, it's this different angle of looking pretty, right? So you turn it this way, it looks good. And you turn it this way, it looks good. And you turn it this way, it looks even better. And, and so it's got this face and this face and this face and this face. And so uh, same diamond, same valuable gem, just a different angle of looking at it, right? You see it from a different angle, you notice a different thing. That's what is so special uh, about a diamond. And the incarnation is the same way. Shift the angle a little bit. Look at it from a slightly different vantage point. Same valuable thing, same story, but man, have you seen it from this angle? What an angle. That's the way to think about the incarnation. There are multiple angles that you can look at it from, but they all point back and speak to the value of the single thing. Jesus defeating Satan at his own game. It's one of those really good angles. Man, have you seen it from this vantage point? Look what he did. Look what he did. Jesus needed. And the word is needed to put on flesh so that he could die. So that he could put the devil to shame. He defeated the one who had the power over death. But that's not all who he defeated. We read of something else. Another reason for the incarnation was verse 15, another facet. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong what? Yeah. Verse 16, for surely, it is, for surely it is not angels that he helps or clutches, grabs a hold of, is what the Greek says. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Not only does Jesus defeat the one who has the power over death, but he also rescues his people from the slavery of death. It's another facet he rescues his people from the slavery of death so that they don't have to fear it anymore. There's, 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 it's powerless. It's impotent. Death itself has been defeated by the one who came and laid his own life down. This is the same reality that led Paul in 1 Corinthians to say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Like, what can you do to me? Think that's going to harm me? Truly harm me? Nah, I'm, I'm okay. Jesus had, has come to rescue those who belong to him. He doesn't, he doesn't do this for angels. I mean, angels are special and all, but he didn't do this for angels. He says he helps or grabs a hold of those who are the offspring of Abraham. Now, now Paul, in several of his letters, goes out of his way to make it very, very clear that we're not talking about bloodline here. The offspring of Abraham are those who, by faith, place their hope in the same promise that Abraham placed his hope in. Those who belong to Jesus through faith. He is our kinsman redeemer, we could say. He steps in to rescue. And so, so two of the most amazing facets of Jesus' incarnation diamond are conquest and rescue, which is awesome, right? Like, who doesn't like a good conquest and rescue story? Like, can't you just picture the, the knight riding in on the steed with the sword in hand to slay the dragon? Yeah! And he turns around and rescues everybody, and, and every good story has to end the same way, right? They, they ride off into the sunset, into their happily ever after. But that's just the fairy tale version of the Rambo option. 
The, the stories aren't any different in a fundamental way. I mean, it's a cool story. Like every action-adventure story needs a, a Rambo option, but there's more layers to our story than just the action-adventure one. So while, while both of those facets, conquest and rescue, while both of those facets are needed, while both of those facets produce awe and worship in us, neither one of those facets answers our question for the morning. Why did he come as a baby? You don't need a baby for the Rambo option. In fact, babies are really, really fun. They're an incredible gift from God, but babies are in the way of the Rambo option. You don't want a baby in that moment. Why did Jesus come as a baby? Why? Why did he come as the one who was utterly vulnerable? We need to keep turning the diamond a little bit. We need to look at this from yet another angle. And that's where verse 17 comes in. Therefore, therefore he had to, be, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect means all of the ways. Because he's the great rescuer, this needed to happen in this way. He had to be made like his brothers in every single respect. The reason that Jesus came in utter vulnerability is because you and I are a vulnerable people. That's the reason. We experience vulnerability, so too did he. Because you and I are weak. And Jesus needed to know what weak felt like. Because you and I are incapable of actually providing for ourselves. Because you and I are truly helpless. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that it was necessary. And the word is necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to experience the fullness of human vulnerability. The awkwardness that entered into the world at the fall that we heard about in our Advent reading a little bit earlier. Uh, that needed to be personally felt by our Redeemer personally experience. You get hungry and can't do anything about it. Jesus had to understand what helpless hunger was. You get sick. You get tired. Jesus had to understand the full weight of human exhaustion. You get lonely. You feel defeated. You're left betrayed by someone you love dearly. It was necessary, necessary for Jesus to experience every single one of those things. All of them. I mean, think through whatever situation you're walking through right now. Whatever painful suffering that you might be enduring. The Bible teaches that Jesus had to experience the pain and the helplessness of the, of the human experience too. But Why? Why? Like, it's great. I'm, I'm glad he did it, but like, is there actually a reason why? Why was it necessary? We'll look at the rest of verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, comma. What's the next two words? Uh-oh. Those of you who haven't been here a while. So that is what we call a, a conditional conjunction. It's a weird way of saying it's a means to a greater end. We have a much more glorious end that we're working towards here. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It was necessary for Jesus to experience the fullness of human vulnerability because that was the way that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. That was necessary for him to fulfill the role correctly. A priest is a mediator, right? A go-between. And Now normally when, when people in Western culture think of a priest, especially in New England with all of our Catholic influence, we think Catholic priest, right? That's immediately where our mind goes to. And, and we would lovingly and as politely as possible say, not a good idea to call somebody a priest. But in their theological system, it kind of makes sense because they see themselves as a go-between between God and man. Their theology, it makes sense. The writer of Hebrews, though, (laughs) seems to be painting the picture that we have a much better priestly option on the table for us. We have a better priest. We don't don't need some lowly man-made one. We We have Jesus himself, the one who bridges the gap between God and man. Why, why is Jesus a better priest than some human option? Well, for one, because he's Jesus, and who's going to say I'm better than Jesus? It's a, it's a bad argument. Probably not go down that road. But, but two, and this is, this is important, because Jesus uniquely has a foot in both camps. Jesus is unique in all of history because he truly understands both sides of the equation. See, a good mediator needs to be able to be unbiased, right? You only have a couple of options for a mediator. They're either somebody who doesn't understand either side, there's somebody who understands one side and is therefore biased, or there's somebody who understands both sides and can be a good mediator. That's the only options you have for a mediator. Jesus... Jesus understands both sides. The God-man, Jesus the Christ, is able to be both faithful and merciful. Because of his incarnation, Jesus was afforded the opportunity to live in a way uh, that you and I can't live. He stood faithful with that opportunity. He lived sinlessly, perfectly obedient to uh, to God's good commands. But also, because of his incarnation and vulnerability, Jesus truly understands our plight. Truly understands it. He he stands merciful because he truly understands what it's like to live in a world that's broken by sin. He actually gets it. You, You keep turning that diamond around and it looks better and better, doesn't it? He knows, he understands. Verse 18, for because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Follower Jesus, your Savior came near. He came near. He he didn't simply lean in a little bit and give you the token side hug. No, he pressed in. He, He didn't step in real quick and make an appearance and then duck out because he had more important things to do. No, he came. He Jesus lovingly and joyfully, he willingly descended into the awkwardness and the failure and the pain and the heartache and the helplessness that is your world. 
He understands it. He knows exactly what your life is like, not only because he sees every end from the beginning, but also because he's walked through it himself. He knows. He knows by experience. The incarnation means that an infinite God somehow managed to add empathy to his already perfect character. And because he's walked through it himself, he now stands ready and able to walk with you through it too. He's not far away. He's near. He's walking with you through something he already understands. Both as God and personally. He's able to help those who are tempted. Church family, what we, what we celebrate during Advent is infinitely bigger and far more life-changing than the lost world around us has any clue about. Any clue. And so listen, I, I love the lights and I love the food and I love it when Ralphie finally gets that Red Rider BB gun. The third time I'm going to watch it this, this year. I love those Moments, those things add flavor to this season, but what, what Christians celebrate in Advent is the coming of a God who refused to remain far off. He came near, he stepped purposefully into your mess. He understands it inside and out because he's lived it. Not because it, it makes for a cute little Christmas time story, but because our Savior is good and he has done all of the things, not just some of the things, every single one of the things that are necessary to reconcile you to himself. Because you're vulnerable, so is he. He knows. What we celebrate at Advent truly, truly changes the world. So what do, we, what do we do with this, right? Like how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? And so ask yourself the question, does, does your Christmas celebration look fundamentally different than the lost world around you? That doesn't mean you have to purge all the extra stuff. The extra stuff can be great. But what are you aiming at this season? What are you desperately hoping will take place before you get to the other side of this month? If you were completely honest right now, what, like what's the one thing that you could point to and say that your Christmas season rises or falls if that thing happens? And even more importantly, would your lost friends and family be confused by your answer? Because if not, it doesn't look anything different than them. Despite all the extra stuff, that we've added to this season, the very first time that Jesus' birth was celebrated, far outshines anything that we've ever dreamt of. Far outshines. So pastorally speaking, man, I want nothing less for you. Like, I want you to revel in that too. And so what needs to shift in your heart? What, what needs to shift in your home so that this year's celebration looks more like that first one? All the extra stuff is great, but what, what core thing needs to shift so that you're pointing a different direction? It's going to be different for different people, but I think our God's big enough to help us walk through that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll, we'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today.
You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. We, we celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter, right? The reason, the reason that Jesus came was because we are by default separated from God because of our sin. The just punishment for sin is death. It's what we all deserve. But the good news, the gospel news is that God came near. He lived sinlessly and he died on the cross sacrificially in order to pay the debt on your behalf. And so that's that propitiation piece that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's also the entire point of the book of Romans, so I just skipped it for today. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then Jesus rose victoriously so that he now stands as Lord. And so he calls on you to respond to him in faith today. And I hope you'll do that this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I mean, I'll be down front here and if you want somebody to walk you through what that next step looks like, but let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you especially for Advent. God, I, I know my heart. I need the slow walk to the manger. I need to be reminded that you are the one righting all wrongs, that you are the one bridging the gap. You are the one undoing every awkwardness. If I'm honest with myself, I'm the one adding to the awkwardness. I can't fix anything. So you came near. You stepped into a broken world, and you came to save. You understand exactly what it is to be me because you've lived like me. All so that you could reconcile. All so that you could draw near. All so that you could declare me righteous, not by my own deeds, but by your perfect deed. So God, those of us in here who know you and are celebrating Christmas this year as those who have been reconciled to God, would you help us shape that celebration in such a way that bears witness to what that reconciliation looks like? But even more importantly, God, would you, would you save those who don't know you yet? Would you reconcile more even this morning? Would you open eyes to see and hearts to know and ears to hear? Will we get to celebrate Christmas this year with a bigger kingdom family? You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.